Today I'd like to talk about feeling. It seems that the world of our feelings exerts a powerful force upon our lives. Our times of greatest joy, our experiences of happiness, of love, of closeness, of laughter, of celebration, these are times that are rooted in our feelings. Equally are times of greatest sorrow, times of loss, of grief, of anger, our experiences of of hatred or aversion, loneliness and rejection. These times too are times that are rooted in our feelings. Those moments in our lives when we feel moved to reach out to other people with compassion or empathy, with care, those very movements in our lives are rooted in our feelings. Equally, those times when we feel very compelled to move away from others with aversion or with judgment, those movements begin with the feelings that we are experiencing in that moment. Our feelings also very much govern and dictate the quality of relationship that we have with ourselves and the way that the relationship that we have ourselves changes. Those moments when we respect and appreciate ourselves, those moments of acceptance, of openness to who we are, that relationship is governed by the feelings that are present in those moments. Equally, feelings govern those times and that quality of relationship we can have with ourselves when we feel very condemning, very judging, very rejecting, or when we hold ourselves in the light of, of disapproval or, or contempt even. Those moments, too, are very much governed and dictated by the feelings that are present. At times, the feelings that we experience can be remarkably powerful, sometimes startling us with how incredibly intense our feelings can be and the ways in which those feelings can seemingly overwhelm us and and ambush us. We can find ourselves in a dangling or ensnared by powerful emotions and feelings. Our feelings also have power in other ways. I mean, certainly when we feel very intimate, very close, um, very connected with other people or within ourselves, it is through the power of our feelings. Sometimes that power is experienced very positively and sometimes that power is experienced very negatively. Sometimes we can be devastated by the degree of feelings of fear or alienation that can arise in our life. 
There are other times when the presence of our feelings is so subtle um, that we tend to ignore them or dismiss them or not even be aware that a feeling is present in our mind. Now, in Buddhist teaching, there is never any separation that is made between mind and heart. There's actually only one word for mind and heart. The word is citta, which means consciousness, consciousness with feelings, consciousness with thoughts. The inclination or the tendency to separate mind and heart is very much, a, I must say, a Western invention. You know, where we think about having a mind that works in one way and feelings that live somewhere else. Certainly in Buddhist teaching, there is never any separation that is made, but as always, mind and feeling are regarded as being endlessly interdependent and entwined together and interconnected and something actually that really can't actually be separated. Again and again, the Buddha, Buddha in his teaching said that what we feel, we perceive, that feeling, perception and consciousness are always co-joined, they are companions to each other that what we feel, we perceive, we think about. I think if we explore our own consciousness, our sense of consciousness in meditation, um, and see the changes that we go through in a single day or in a single hour, I feel that we can begin to appreciate how incredibly artificial any separation is between the mind and the heart. In the Dhammapada, it's said that the mind, or the heart, is the forerunner of all things. The mind and the heart are the forerunners of all things. And if it goes on to say, we are what we think, we are what we feel. All that we are arises with our thoughts, with our feelings speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and so will follow you, as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you, as your shadow unshakable. Purity, by the way, in Buddhist sense, is not meant as an opposite to impurity. Purity in the in Buddhist teaching is meant in the sense of clarity and awareness. Before we act, before we speak, before we move, before we formulate thoughts, there are feelings present. The choices that we make, the words that we speak or leave unspoken, the directions that we pursue or the directions that we reject, for any of these to happen, for any of this to occur, first we must feel. First there is feeling, the forerunner of all things. How often are we actually aware of this most significant 
and essential aspect of consciousness. Now, I think in the West, when we speak about feeling, we more often are speaking or thinking in terms of emotion. You know, we say, or we know, and are able to say, I'm happy, I'm depressed, I'm excited, I'm frustrated. The list is sometimes endless. And when we think of emotion, we don't think of emotion as just being a kind of, you know, a little feeling that arises and passes. Usually we think of emotions as being big, powerful, impactful, outstanding in some way. There are emotions um, that we view, some emotions that we view as being very positive emotions to have, very expanding, exhilarating emotions to have. And there are other emotions that we tend to view very differently, other emotions that we feel are more negative, you know, unwelcome, unspiritual um, emotions that we regard as being somehow threatening or devastating. There are emotions probably that we find ourselves actively pursuing and seeking and trying to hold on to and trying to repeat. There are other emotions that we may very well not find ourselves avoiding or fearing because of their power and consequences. When we think of emotion, and it is truly important to explore what we mean by emotion. When we think of emotion, we often regard emotion as a state of experience that just happens. You know, sometimes we regard emotion as something that arrives kind of ready-made, you know, sort of a complete package, you know, that suddenly appears in a kind of preordained or or pre-constructed, um, you know, we say, you know, suddenly, I'm like this, you know, I'm so angry, you know, I'm so sad. Or sometimes we see emotion as something as being caused by circumstances outside of ourselves, you know, we say, oh, this person makes me so angry, you know, or this situation is so frustrating. You know, or this makes me so bored. You know, we think of emotion as being somehow caused, that something outside of ourselves is going to trigger this particular emotion to happen. And I think increasingly in our world, in the Western world, out of recognizing both the power and the consequences of emotion, Emotion has actually gained a certain stature and value in our world. Um, quite different, and in some ways quite more charged than other aspects of our being. You know, there's, you know, this kind of very frequently mentioned phrases, you know, that have become almost cliched, you know, where we talk about getting in touch with our emotions, or we talk about opening our hearts, or sometimes people talk about opening to their pain. Um, 
getting in touch with their feelings. And we speak about this almost as if, you know, there's this hidden compartment of our being, this separate hidden compartment of our being, which is separate and somehow sacred and special or different and apart from every other aspect of our being. Some people feel, you know, that they need to turn to an expert, you know, or find a special prescription or a special technique in order to be more in touch with their hearts or in order to be more in touch with their feelings. We also talk about working on our emotions or working with our emotions. Again, I think it sometimes is helpful to appreciate how very Western that concept is, you know, of working with our emotions or, or even using meditation to work on our feelings. I mean, you know, if you ever went to an Asian teacher and said you were working on something in your practice, they would look at you with such bewilderment, you know. And sometimes, you know, people talk about this endless, you know, viewing meditation as work. You know, I often do have this, you know, this image that comes into my mind, you know, of waiting to see people come in the meditation room with overalls and toolboxes, you know, that we're, we're going to work on something here. It is a particularly Western notion. When we think of working of our, on our emotions, unfortunately, sometimes we do are approaching the world of our feelings in a rather static and conditioned way. Because sometimes we think of working on our emotions, often the agenda there, or the idea there, is that to work on our emotions somehow means to resolve them or to fix them. The most common theory that we hold, I think, in, a, in our contemporary world, that to be in touch in our feelings means to be able to go through some sort of catharsis, some, some sort of emotional catharsis, that being in touch with our feelings is equated with somehow being able to express our emotion, and that expressing or catharsis is actually a way or conceived of as being a way of being true to our feelings or able to resolve our feelings. I think this happens particularly in regard to emotions that we feel are um, difficult or negative or charged, that belief that we must suppress them, express them, and that if we don't express, we are going to end up suppressing and being untrue to our feelings. I guess this is just an idea that I would like to explore as we explore our own relationship to feelings. You know, if this is true, you know, if this is the only way of actually, in a deep sense, being open to and in touch with our feelings, does it mean that we must express in order not to suppress? Now, I can understand, you know, certainly it's very understandable where that kind of glorifying of expression comes from, because many of us have grown up an incredibly emotionally lobotomized world, you know, where it was considered, you know, very uh, unacceptable to express or to reveal or to show emotion in any way, and many people in the past have found themselves caught 
and those in unenviable positions of feeling that somehow, you know, they must straightjacket the life of their feelings, that to express their feelings or reveal or be open about feelings would lead to judgment and condemnation or would be called weakness um, or would be called being, you know, very, you know, just like a woman, you know, here they are, you know, expressing their feelings just like a woman, what do you expect? And so many of us in our lives have, you know, reverted in the past to that other extreme of being very rigid, you know, very withholding, very denying of feelings. And we don't want to get caught in that position anymore. You know, we feel we don't want to get caught in that position anymore. And, you know, particularly, of course, in Europe, you know, you know, we are famed for our stoicism, you know, how we can go through life, you know, with, with a face that reveals nothing. And I think probably in the past, you know, having gone through those experiences of somehow being condemned or judged or evaluated in some way because of, of feeling and feeling being labeled weakness, we perhaps determine that this is not going to happen in the present, you know, and we, we come up with these mantras, you know, like I'm going to be true to my feelings, you know, or if I'm going to, if I feel something, then automatically I must express it. Um, and that the way to be free within our feelings is somehow equated with the capacity to express them. Now, I feel that there's something of an extreme or something also of an error that can be made in this. Often, what happens through catharsis or expression is not necessarily in any way that we are any freer of the entanglement that we can get ourselves tied into over feelings. I don't feel there's any truth in the belief that just because you can express a feeling means that you're free within your feelings or able to be free of, the, of, of what those feelings are actually holding. What happens sometimes to catharsis or expression, of course, is that we are able to rid ourselves of the tension that comes with emotional charge. You know, the tension goes. But of course it is a temporary relief of tension. I mean, I'm sure in our experience we see, you know, there's been times when, yes, there is that tension around feelings, tension around emotions. We're able to express it in some way, you know, we have a wonderful cry, you know, we shout at the world, oh, we say, oh, what a relief. And then moments later, hours later, or days later, we find ourselves returning to exactly the same place of anger or grief or sadness or exhilaration and say, well, here I am again. You know, and how much do we want to go through our lives like on this Ferris wheel, you know, of just, you know, expressing, returning, expressing, returning. I think the capacity to express emotion, equating that with freedom is an erroneous conclusion. I mean, there are countless people in our world, very, I mean, if I dare say so, without being judgmental, very unenlightened people who have no problem at all with expressing emotion. You know, does it mean to be free? I mean, have you ever sat in a traffic jam in England? You know? You're in the company of everybody who feels free to express their emotion and swearing and shouting at each other, you know. There's so much emotion being very freely expressed, you know. 
Is it a sign of being liberated? I don't think so, you know. I mean, some months ago, I mean, mean, rage has become part of our culture, you know. I mean, the capacity to be enraged is somehow equated with the capacity to be liberated, you know. We we have the right to be enraged these days. You know, it comes with with consumers' charters, you know. We have the right to be enraged. You know, I was in the supermarket months ago, and I was standing there quite fairly mindfully, putting my groceries onto the belt, and suddenly I was shouting at the end of the line, and there's this man who's shouting at this um, cashier for apparently squashing his bread, but screaming, screaming, and, and, and I, you know, it was absolutely sort of shocking. And, you know, this poor woman, unable to answer back because she was the employee, etc., etc. And I felt obliged to say to this man, you know, like, well, because you have a right to be such a bully. He says, I'm a customer, I have the right to express my feelings. <laughs> you know? I'm free to express whatever I feel here, no one can tell me what to do. And if that's freedom, who needs it? You know, who needs that freedom to go around and downpour Express it's not necessarily being free. It's no more free than being tangled up in a straitjacket of suppression. I mean, freedom surely has to come with wisdom, with a, with a real sense of liberation within the world of feeling, not to be judged by what we do or our reactions to feelings, but our sense of freedom and fluidity within our world of feelings. In Buddhist teaching, a tremendous amount of emphasis is given to feelings, both to the development of feeling and to the letting go of feeling. So much is spoken of in terms of seeking to nurture and develop happiness and well-being and peace and serenity and tranquility and compassion. These are all feelings. So much is spoken of of, of nurturing and fostering loving-kindness and joy and sensitivity. These are all feelings. So much is spoken of, of letting go of anger, of hatred, of greed, of craving. These are all feelings. Nowhere in Buddhist teaching is it spoken of that there is some sort of uh, value in aspiring towards a sort of blessed neutrality in our life. The mindfulness of feeling is the second foundation in the four foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Vipassana Sutra. The mindfulness of feeling is the second foundation of mindfulness. It is very much at the heart of the meditative tradition. But if you look in Buddhist sutras, I don't know if many of you do this very often, but (laughs) it's something I do fairly often. If you look in Buddhist sutras, in the index of Buddhist sutras, Look up the word emotion. It doesn't exist. Well, that's not entirely true to say. It almost doesn't exist. In, in, uh, in my attempt to find the word emotion in Buddhist suttas, I actually did find one reference. And it was said that you know, if, a, if a Buddhist happened to make a pilgrimage to the Bodhi tree or to the place of the Buddha's death, that they might feel some emotion. Apart from that, there's actually no reference to emotion, which is actually quite intriguing and interesting in the perspective of this teaching. 
There are thousands of references to feelings, but the word emotion is actually not in, hardly in existence. Not because in Buddhist teaching or in meditative teaching that emotion is somehow regarded as being unworthy of attention, and not because in our practice we're any way directed towards becoming feelingless or barren or flat inwardly. Emotion is not listed essentially because feeling is never regarded as any sort of state that is preformed or preordained. Emotion is not listed as a subject, as a noun, basically, because in Buddhist teaching it's a verb. It's not a noun. It's not a thing. You know, it's not an object, it's not something that arrives. But rather that emotion is seen always as being a process, a fluid, unfolding process that is comprised of an interwoven tapestry of different elements. That emotion is comprised of a tapestry that includes body, it includes feelings, it includes thoughts, it includes associations. The experience or the state that we are sometimes tempted, I think, to call emotions is sometimes, I think when we look closely, that what we, that, that naming is actually a concept that is imposed upon or used to describe a fluid, unfolding process. And actually, I think if you look in your meditation, actually you can see that it is very difficult to find an object which is an emotion. If you take a moment, you know, if you look at those moments, in your meditation, when you feel or you say, you know, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm bored, I'm depressed. What do we mean by those words? Or what do those words actually describe for us? Look closely at it. You know, boredom, okay? You might have said at some point today that you're bored. You know, I'm bored. But what is boredom? You know, can you, can you show somebody boredom? You know, here's boredom, is what it looks like. Or when you actually go into boredom, where is it? You know, is your ear bored? You know, is your, is your big toe bored? You know, where does boredom live? Does it have a place? Can you find a place and say, oh yeah, that's the home of boredom. What is actually boredom? What are any of those feelings that we are so quick to define, sadness, anger? When we look within them, we actually see the ways that our bodies might be involved. That our bodies in that place, involved in that process, there might be tension, there might be tightness, there might be contractions, there might be a certain energy happening within our body and feelings that is very powerful energy, or it can feel a very contracted energy. The, the feelings may have a particular flavor. You know, that state that we describe by one word might have a particular flavor that might be unpleasant, it might be pleasant, it might be neutral. 
there are probably thoughts involved with it. Thoughts of, you know, uh, associated with different people, objects, experiences. How many of those thoughts actually also bring in memories of associations? You know, think of one moment when you experience what we call an emotion and truly be intimate with that emotion. And what we experience is that it is an interwoven tapestry. There is no object, there is no subject, that there is a process that is taking place. Now, we sometimes, I think, find ourselves struggling with the world of feeling, struggling with the world of, of emotion. Um, we find ourselves reacting. If it's an unpleasant feeling, our first layer of response tends to be one of, you know, how do I get rid of it? You know, those are the moments when you, you want to run screaming out of the meditation room, you know, I can't bear this, you know, uh, you know, or wildly going, you know, around the world, you know, that this is unbearable, I have to get out of it. We want to get rid of it. We want to find somehow to almost like rip it out of ourselves and deposit it elsewhere. If it's a, an emotion that we delight in, you know, our thoughts run along a different line, you know, much more along the line of how can I stay stuck here, you know? How can I make this last? How can I actually continue this? Positive or negative, you know, our emotions are states or processes that actually fascinate us. It is no surprise that so much attention in meditation is actually given to the mindfulness of feeling. The Buddha said what we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we think about. Our thoughts proliferate of past, of present, of future. Like nothing else, feelings hook us. They have carry with them such Stickiness. It is the area of our being that produces the most energy, the most busyness, and the most thought. Mindfulness practice is certainly not in any way to get rid of feeling. It is not to make an effort to get rid of feeling. But a great effort is made in this practice to be free of being imprisoned by any feeling. No effort is made in practice to close down to our capacity to feel, but a great effort is made to open to our capacity to feel with wisdom and awareness. I'm nurturing in meditation our capacity not only for love, for acceptance, for compassion, but equally nurturing our capacity for clarity and freedom. And probably there's nowhere else more important in our lives where we need to be clear than within the world of our feelings. It's not a goal in meditation to get rid of feeling, but certainly I think an object of meditation is to liberate ourselves of the baggage with which we surround feeling. The baggage of association, the baggage of conclusions, of assumptions, of fear. And the Buddha spoke about feeling as a potential, not as a problem, but as a potential that within our capacity to feel, there lies an enormous creative potential 
in the sense that our capacity to feel when we are very clearly connected with us, our capacity to feel nurtured, empathy, a closeness, a connectedness, it gladdens us and heals us. There is no problem within the world of feeling, and feelings in themselves do not imprison us. What actually imprisons us in the world of feeling are the tendencies that underlie our feelings, that we get captured by. The underlying tendencies towards aversion, ignorance, and craving. This is where we get imprisoned, not in the feelings in themselves. It's also easy, easy to see this in our experience. For example, it's very clear, you know, you can't control the feelings always that arise in your world because you can't control the impressions that come to you in your world. I mean, there are impressions that are unpleasant and there are feelings that arise in response to unpleasant impressions that are equally unpleasant. I mean, if, you know, if the manager's here, you know, handed you a plate of burnt food at lunch, you know, it would be kind of foolish to say, oh, this is really nice, you know, this is delightful. This is an unpleasant, you know, there's an objective unpleasantness here. The sensation that arises is perhaps unpleasant. We can't control the feelings that arise in our hearts, our bodies, or our minds. I mean, try it. I mean, try only to have good feelings today or tomorrow. You know, get up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to have good feelings today. Only pleasant ones, you know, only delightful, uplifting thoughts, you know. Only nice sensations, you know. This is the day for pleasure. Try it. It doesn't actually work, you know. The world of impressions is made up of unpleasant, pleasant, neutral. The world of sensation and feeling also has its foundation. Unpleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The imprisonment and the liberation is found in our responses, our relationship to the feelings that emerge. If we are unaware in relationship to the pleasant sensation and the pleasant feeling, then that feeling gets captured by the underlying tendency towards craving and wanting and clinging. If we are unaware in the midst of the unpleasant feeling, that feeling gets captured by aversion and resistance. If we're unaware in the midst of the neutral feeling, that feeling is captured by ignorance, by making, wanting to make something happen, believing something is missing. You can think, see easily how that happens in your day. You know, say you have a sitting, um, you know, a pleasant sitting, where there's pleasant feelings. You know, it does happen. If it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. Um, where there are pleasant feelings. You know, how quickly, you know, our, our grasping can take place, you know. Oh, good, you know, I've got a pleasant sensation, I'm a wonderful meditator all of a sudden, you know. How can I make this last, you know, oh, this is going to last forever, you know. I'm absolutely so terrific at this, the world is wonderful, you know, wonderful community, the weather's great, you know, food's terrific, you know how easily that pleasant feeling is captured, is surrounded by associations, by thoughts, 
becomes a prison. You know, think of the unpleasant feeling, you know, perhaps you're, you're walking in the garden, you know, and, and you're, you know, you stub your toe or something, you know, something so simple. It is an unpleasant feeling, you know, and how quickly that can be captured by aversion. You know, it's all their fault. They don't look after this place, you know. You know, it's, you know, mindfulness for the birds. You know, no one can be mindful, you know. And, you know, look what mindfulness brings me, you know, a broken foot, you know, and as I go home. To see, you know, you sit in meditation with actually a neutral feeling. And there are many neutral feelings in our lives. The neutral feeling is actually one of the most intriguing experiences, you know. There are many times of neutral feelings in our lives. Neutral, you know, nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. It is so intriguing how the neutral feeling brings with it often so much anxiety of being. You know, you know, the unpleasant we can do something with. You know, we've got something to hate, react against, shout at. The pleasant we can do something with. We can find an identity in. You know, oh look, you know, I'm like this. I'm like that. I've got so many plans, you know, so many aspirations. The neutral thing is so much more challenging. To rest in nothing happening, to rest in something where there is no evidence of identity, you know, nothing within our experience that says good, bad, pleasant, unpleasant, worthy, unworthy. To rest within our experience in our lives, in the experience of nothing happening, I feel the neutral feeling is actually the, the birthplace of wisdom. Amen? You can rest in the neutral feeling without anxiety, you can rest anywhere. Amen? It can be a place of such depth, of such being so much at home in the midst of not knowing. It can be quite extraordinary. Usually that's not so easy, you know. So what do we do with the neutral feeling? Well, we want to make something happen, you know. A fantasy will do, or a daydream will do, you know, or we, you know, we'll, we'll look for something to happen. You know, people tell me meditation is nothing happened. They start doing their multiplication tables, you know. Because <laughs> there's something has to be going on, you know. If there's nothing going on, I don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. The neutral feeling is extraordinarily intriguing. You know, noticing the day and the days here. You know, how those movements, the movements that we make towards something, the movements that we make away from something, the subtle ones, you know, the very subtle ones that we make in our thoughts, our inclinations, our feelings, and the very obvious ones that we make in our bodies. You know, when you leave the meditation room, you know, and, and head, for the, head for the kettle, you know, when you leave the meditation room, you know, and immediately want to make contact with something, when, when you're walking outside and you suddenly find yourself moving away from something, from the sight of a person, you know, from a sound, from, um, from a sensation, really being at home in the beginning of those movements, of for, towards and away from, of being for and against. Because those movements are really the forerunners of our emotional processes. Those movements towards and away from are the forerunners of the states that sometimes we find ourselves imprisoned by. And if we can actually pause a little bit in that movement towards, movement away from, we actually learn to open, to 
to not be imprisoned, to allow all things to be. It can be quite a revelation to no longer have ourselves, our lives dictated by the unpleasant, the neutral, and the pleasant. It's a liberation. You know, there, there is a wonderful Zen um, poem that says, you know, this path is not difficult for those who, are, who have no preferences. You know, and, and it goes on in another part to say, you know, wisdom neither craves nor hates. You know, that to be for and against is the illness of the mind. You know, equally to be said to be illness of the heart. It doesn't mean, you know, that um, all things are exactly the same. Of course, things are not the same in the world. But what does it mean to be not conditioned by the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? It certainly doesn't mean an absence of feeling. It doesn't mean an emotional flatness. It means an incredible richness of being. When we are obsessed, when we become fixated and imprisoned by pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, there's a surrender of vastness, a surrender of spaciousness. We become what we feel. Learning to rest with ease within the world of feeling, to rest with ease within the joyful and the sorrowful, the challenging and the supportive, to learn to welcome all equally is to discover tremendous inner freedom and a capacity to feel with such depth, you know, compassion and empathy and loving kindness and sensitivity they're not rooted just in liking something, our personal likes or preferences. They are rooted in the openness of heart that can embrace the whole world of feeling, the difficult and the challenging, to be at rest and at ease and open within them all. It is where we discover, I feel, a sense both of true balance and true freedom in our lives, where we discover open-heartedness. If we take just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.